Well, good evening, everyone. Um, thanks very much, Paddy, for leading us through that first uh, part of the service. Um, it's great to be picking a gap again in the book of Acts. If you've got it um, with you, do turn back to Acts chapter 2, and we'll be picking up this evening uh, from verse 21, which is where we, uh, from verse 22, which is where we left it um, last time. Um, there are many important people in the world, aren't there? As we look out um, at the world around us, there are the, the rich and the famous, the people who we uh, hear about in the news, um, on the radio, on our social media feeds. Uh, and then, of course, there are other important people. There are people like the inventors who keep pushing the limits of what we can do. And then, of course, there are important people like politicians and kings and rulers of our lands. But the truth is that on any given day, most of these important people, even those who are ruling over us, they have little direct, personal impact on our lives. They can impact our lives, and they do. But in reality, we often sideline them, don't we, to distant dare we say, even somewhat irrelevant individuals when it comes to us just getting on with our busy day-to-day lives. And here's the thing. As we turn back to our passage from the book of Acts this evening, often the person that we're going to be confronted with here, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, as Peter puts it in verse 22, he can often be thought of like that. As someone who, if we think of him at all, we maybe just think of as another important person in the long line of history, but not someone with any real relevance in our lives. Just another person to hear of, find out a little bit about, and then move on from, getting on with our day-to-day. But that couldn't be further from the case. A bit like Peter says there in verse 22, I want to say to us this evening this, people of Great Vic, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And hear these words because you will not hear about anyone more important. And you will not hear about anyone more relevant to your day-to-day. Someone who can actually have more more of an impact or bring about more of a change in your life, you will not find than Jesus of Nazareth. And why is that then? Well, it's because of who Jesus is and what he has done, which is what Peter here is going to explain to us in this magnificent section of his speech in Acts chapter 2. For now, though, I want to turn our attention straight to Peter's summary verse. I think if you look with me to verse 36, it's going to help us to see Jesus of Nazareth enduring importance and relevance in every single one of our lives. Look there with me, verse 36. Having begun, didn't he, by pointing us to Jesus, here is Peter's conclusion here. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter's point as we look at it this evening. Whether you have thought about him much up to, in your life up till now or not, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And how is that relevant? Well, because as Lord today, as we're going to see, he reigns and rules over all things. And because as Christ Today, that is, as the Messiah, the promised one, he has come and he has done so much more than the Jews at the time expected him or hoped him to, for him to do. 
deliver his people back then from Roman occupation. No, as the promised one, as the anointed Messiah, he came to deliver his people then, and he came to deliver his people today from death, giving his life as a sacrifice for the sin that would otherwise condemn us to that death. Peter says here, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus today is both Lord and Christ. He is the risen, glorious king over all the earth, and he is the gracious savior of all who will come to him. As we hear that this evening, as we begin, here is the thing. See, in verse 36, we read that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. But then the question, I guess, is this. Is Jesus your Lord? And do you know this Jesus as Christ, the promised one who you have turned to for deliverance, for the forgiveness of your sins? The truth is that your answer to that question, it isn't going to fundamentally change who Jesus is. He is who he is. He is Lord and Christ. But your answer to that question will profoundly change your reality and your life and your eternity. So if you're sitting here this evening and at this point you would say, you know, I don't know whether I would say that Jesus is my Lord. I don't know whether he is my deliverer. Let me just encourage you, as we work through this incredible passage, take seriously what we are going to see about this Jesus about who he is and what he has done, because you will never have a more relevant or more important question to answer than, is Jesus your Lord? As we said, your answer is going to define your eternity. But I know, obviously here, speaking at Great Vic this evening, there are many sitting here who will say yes. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my deliverer. He is my savior. So let me also say to you this evening, take encouragement from these incredible words. As we see who Jesus is and what he has done, it is my prayer that your faith will once again be renewed as it's grounded once again on the solid, immovable truth that Jesus truly is both Lord and Christ. The world around us would have us turn to so many other things for life and for salvation. It's going to bombard us with all kinds of messages, messages about Jesus, particularly that he is no longer relevant. He's just some kind of ancient teacher from long ago who, who teaches these outdated morals and vision for life. That's what the world's going to say. But I hope that as we see Peter's words here, you will see afresh that that is not the case. And as we consider these words, it's my prayer you're going to be stirred and once again know for certain that still today, Jesus, your Lord, is Lord of all. And he is the Christ. And that that will encourage us all then to go on boldly serving him. So let's get into the meat of Peter's speech here and see four ways that Jesus has been revealed by God to be both Lord and Christ. And the first way that we're going to see that God has shown Jesus to be Lord and Christ is by working wonders through him. Let's read verse 22 here as we begin. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. We read that Jesus came from Nazareth, a seemingly insignificant little village, perhaps. But he was himself quite the opposite. His life and his works were overwhelmingly significant and meaningful. Of course, Luke, hasn't he, in the first volume here, has spent most of his gospel spelling out these exact mighty works that he's talking about the wonders and signs of Christ, the healing of the sick, the driving out of evil spirits, the feeding of 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. 
And of course, Luke also records for us two incredible accounts of Jesus where he raises the dead. Jesus comes and even the dead are made alive. These are not things that just ordinary men can do. Because Jesus is no ordinary man. And the point here is that the crowd that Peter is speaking to can testify to the truth of all that Jesus has done. Many of these people in this crowd would have been there and would have seen, witnessed Jesus' miracles firsthand. And others would have had close friends or family who would have heard about them. And notice what that Peter is saying here. These miracles and signs are a way of God saying and showing to us for certain that Jesus is no ordinary man. This is the Lord and Christ. See there in verse 22, Jesus is attested by God. And we're told God did these wonders through him because God was revealing Jesus to be Lord and Christ. Secondly then, moving on to verse 23, we then also see that God reveals Jesus to be both Lord and Christ by his death. Now, at first glance, uh, that might seem a little bit strange. How does Jesus' death reveal him to be Lord and Christ? Well, primarily because God had already revealed that this was how his anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, would come to save his people. Look at how verse 23 puts it. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And while Luke doesn't go there specifically at this point, our thoughts have to keep turning back to the Old Testament where we see this foreseen and prophesied. Think of a passage like Isaiah 53, the prophecy we read there. This Messiah, he is going to come and he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Well, Peter here in this verse makes it very clear that those who crucified Christ, well, they are not without excuse. They are responsible for their wicked actions. The truth is that this was always how it was going to be for the Messiah, the Christ, so that he can deliver his people by bearing their sins through his blameless death. Listen to how Jesus himself spoke about this very thing right at the end of Luke's gospel, the first account. In chapter 24, verse 45, he says to his disciples that thus is it written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And here we see that being worked out. We'll get on to Christ's rising in just a moment, but you can see there that Jesus understood, didn't he, that this was always going to be the way. The way he offered and brought forgiveness to the world through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And amazingly, this can only ever be the grace of God. That sacrifice and forgiveness would even be offered to those who were themselves involved in putting Jesus to death. Isn't that incredible? Look at how straight Peter is here in verse 23. He says to the crowd he's speaking with, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in saying this, just as some of those present would have witnessed Christ's miracles and wonders, we see here that some were directly involved in disowning Jesus and turning him over to be crucified. Perhaps some even in this crowd, imagine it, they were there shouting, crucify him, when he stood before Pilate. But as we hear Peter's direct words here, I don't think the idea is then that we look back and point fingers. What Peter says here saying, you crucified him. Well, in many ways, that actually points to us all. As each of us in our sinful state, likewise, 
would turn our backs on Jesus, preferring to live our lives with ourselves on the throne rather than Jesus. We sing, don't we, in that, that famous song, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Each of us, as sinful humans, bear the responsibility of Christ's death. Apart from our sin, his death wouldn't have been necessary. But because of our sin, it was completely necessary. But even those who have put Jesus to death, as we'll see as we go through, there is grace and there is hope. And so we see here in verse 23, God revealing Jesus as both Lord and Christ, the promised Messiah through his death, which happened according to God's definite plan. And then in verses 24 to 32, we see a third way, a third way that God reveals Jesus to be both Lord and Christ, and that is by raising him from the dead. And here we're reaching an initial climax, it seems, in Peter's words. I don't know if you can sense the passion here. He's finished in verse 23, hasn't he, by saying that those he's listening to have crucified Christ. But listen here to verse 24. He continues, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You might have crucified him, but that is not the end of the story, says Peter. Jesus could not stay dead. And notice again as we see this, first of all, that this is God's doing. It says, he raised him up. Do you see that? He says that twice, actually, Peter, in verse 24 and then also in verse 32. And in God doing that, he demonstrated once again Jesus' lordship, who he is. Why couldn't Jesus stay dead? Because as God's perfect son, he didn't die an ordinary death. In his death, he once and for all paid the penalty for sin. And having paid that penalty in our place, if we are trusting in him, death no longer had any claim on him. It could not hold him. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says that the wages of sin is death. But as Lord and Christ, Jesus' sinless, perfect life could not be constrained by death. It did not have any hold on him. Peter writes about Christ loosing the pangs of death here. And it's a striking image. Where death, it would bind us round and round in chains, each and every one of us not letting us go. Christ broke those chains. He broke the chains of death. And the incredible news is that in doing that, he has also broken the chains of death for each and every single person who will now come to him as Lord and Christ and find forgiveness. Just as death could not hold Christ, so now it cannot hold those who are in Christ. Now, as we said at the beginning, People say all things about Jesus, but this is no irrelevant historical character, is it? Can there be anything more relevant than a death-defeating saviour? Isn't this the hope that we all need in our lives? Isn't this the hope of our city, of our world? that death is not the end, but that just as Christ rose, so we also will rise. We sang it earlier, didn't we? There is no victory but Jesus crucified, no other cure for sin but that our Saviour died, no other hope we have but that he rose again. No wonder we sing, didn't we? My hope in darkest night my broken soul's delight. No other name but Jesus. Jesus. Later on in verse 
32, Peter himself witnesses, doesn't he, to Christ's, Jesus' resurrection, which is what he's been called to do by Jesus himself. And in doing so, Peter is saying, listen, I need you to know this, and I need you to know this for certain. This happened. Jesus rose from the dead and changed everything. Don't go on, people in the crowd back then. Do not go on, people here, as if nothing has happened. Stop and take this in. The ultimate and final enemy, death, it has been defeated. If you simply will come and turn to Christ, come to him, you can find a lasting hope, a hope that goes beyond the grave. Now we've already seen here that in raising Jesus up from the grave, God is revealing Jesus' unique identity as the sinless saviour the Christ, who would save his people from their sins. But Peter then also uses a quote here from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, to further reinforce what he's trying to say. See, Peter says, Jesus' resurrection and the hope that it would give his people, well, it was predicted. It was foreseen by King David. Do you notice, first off, the hope in these verses as Peter quotes them there. Verses 25 to 28. The Lord always before me. He says, I may not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. And then to close, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That is hope-filled language. And how is it that David can speak like that? Because he has this hope that we've just been talking about. A hope that lasts beyond the grave. Turn there to look at verse 27 again. This is the key, uh, key verse here. It's, it's written, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. As Peter goes on, he explains, doesn't he, in verses 29 to 31, what he's saying. In this verse, David is looking beyond himself. David will die. He does die, and his body does see corruption. That is corruption here in the sense of the usual decay of any human body after death. So in this verse, David was speaking about the promised Messiah, not himself. The Messiah who would come after him who, as we read in verse 31 then, was not abandoned to Hades, and whose flesh did not see corruption, because death couldn't hold him. In quoting from Psalm 16 like this, Peter is saying to the Jews he's speaking to then, listen, you've been waiting for this promised one, haven't you? This Messiah, this one who will come and reign on David's throne forever. Well, listen, he has come. Just as David foresaw, and just as David foresaw, death was not the end for him. This is, once again, God revealing Jesus to be who he is, Lord and Christ. Because Jesus rose again, as was foreseen in this psalm, we can know for certain that he truly is that. And he is the one we can run to and put all our hope in, the death-defeating saviour. So, so far we've seen three ways that God has revealed Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. And now in verses 33 and 35, if you look there with me, we see a fourth and final way he's done that, by exalting Jesus to reign at his right hand. Read with me how Peter continues in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Not only then did God raise Jesus up, but as we saw earlier in Acts chapter 1, if you were with us, Christ has now also ascended, and he is reigning at the Father's right hand. 
In verses 34 and 35, Peter once again shows how this is evidence of Jesus' lordship, fulfilling what was written about him in the Old Testament. Again, here in the Psalms, the promised Messiah, pictured here in Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to his Lord, that is, the Father says to the Messiah, to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God has exalted Jesus as Lord over all things. And as he sits at the right hand of God, this proclaims his greatness, his strength, his goodness, and his divinity. This truly is the Son of God. Once again, as we think of that, who Jesus is, where he is right this very second, Is this the kind of person who is kind of irrelevant? The one who is Lord of the universe? Are we going to sideline him to some kind of bit part show in our lives? This is the one whose enemies are going to be subjected to him. It would be crazy if we treated Jesus like that. Peter is saying God has made it abundantly clear Jesus is Lord and Christ. And this Lord and Christ is not one to be trifled with, ignored, or perhaps even worse, made in some ways to sit at our side and serve our own wishes and desires. No, this is Jesus who is Lord over all, including each and every one of our lives. He is the one that we should be serving. And in verse 33, did you see there the other demonstration or proof that Peter offers of Jesus' exaltation to the Father's right hand? He is there, and now we see it is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit which demonstrates that. And of course, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is is what's drawn this crowd to hear Peter, isn't it, in the first place? They, They heard that noise, didn't they, of them proclaiming the glories of God in all these different languages, and so they were drawn. And Peter says, listen, this is another proof. Because Jesus is Lord. He has received the the Spirit from the Father, and he has sent him to his people. And this was just as it was promised. If you want to be encouraged later on, I would really encourage you to sometime this week, turn to John chapter 14 through to chapter 16. Because Jesus speaks so clearly about this, this promise that he will ascend to the Father's right hand and then he will send the helper. And it is incredible when we think there, if you have time this week to dwell on the Holy Spirit's presence with us. It is glorious and it is a proof that Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand. For now though, Peter concludes by saying, listen, listen to all that I've just told you about Jesus. Verse 36, where we began, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified course, this isn't suddenly a change in who Jesus is. Jesus was both Lord and Christ at his birth. Remember, do you remember what the angels said? We, we hear it at Christmas, don't we? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But Peter's saying here, now we can look, that and look at that and know for even more for certain that that is the case because Jesus has lived the perfect life. He has died, he has risen, and he is now at the Father's right hand. He is Lord and Christ, no doubt. And notice with me then in verse 37 the response. This response to what Jesus has just been proclaiming about, uh, what Peter's just been proclaiming about Jesus. The crowd, they're listening, aren't they? And it's not, they don't just go off unimpressed here. <laughs> oh yes, that's well and good. You, you, you go on speaking about Jesus, we're going to go on live on our lives. No, they hear this 
And we read in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That is the right response to hearing what we've heard tonight. This crowd is floored by Peter's words. And they now cry out. They demand, don't they? You can almost hear the desperation. How should we respond if this is true? If this is Jesus, the one who we crucified, he is actually Lord and Christ, what hope can we have? If this is true that we killed God's Messiah, the anointed one, what can we do now to make it right? Can we make it right? And here is the good news, the best news. There is hope. It can be made right. Listen to Peter's words here in verses 38 and 39. They say, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Grace upon grace upon grace. Christ's death, even as some of those listening were involved in it, that was not the end. Instead, Christ's death and his subsequent resurrection and his ascension actually opens the way for anyone and everyone to be forgiven. And to also then receive the promised Holy Spirit, who we saw last week was poured out on those first 120 believers, just hours before this. So if that's the case, what must this crowd and us today do to receive that forgiveness and the Holy Spirit? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The first of these commands, I think, repent, lies at the heart of what's going on here in this passage. Peter's been pretty clear up to this point, hasn't he, about how those who who he's speaking to have treated Jesus up until now, and it has not been good. Those in the crowd here, rather than serving Jesus as their Lord receiving him as this long-promised and sought-after Messiah, they've turned their backs on him. Essentially, they've said, Jesus, we do not want you in our life. In fact, I would rather see you crucified than have to live my life under your lordship. I'm going to run my own life, thank you very much. If you will just get out of the way to let me do that. And it's into this situation, which in essence I think is the natural inclination of all of our sinful hearts, even today, that Peter calls the people to repent. And repentance is, in essence, to completely reverse that way of thinking that this crowd have had, that we have had up to this point This thinking that has cast Jesus aside and put ourselves on the throne of our lives, living as we please. And repentance is instead of doing that, doing a full 180 and going in completely the other direction, saying sorry for the ways that we've been living. And now seeking to live all of our lives with Jesus as Lord, as the one that we follow. This is the good news here. It is not too late Peter says, repent. Instead of turning against Christ, away from him, turn to him and give him your life. In sorrow for how you've treated the one who God has made Lord and Christ, confess your sin. And the promise here is incredible. You will receive full and free forgiveness for that sin. Sin that otherwise would leave you in those chains. Do you remember? bound with death's chains wrapped around you. Now, in case we might be tempted, I guess, to to think of repentance, well, maybe it's just something that we can outwardly do. Simply, maybe we just have to say the right words. 
recite some kind of learnt confession. Let me just say this evening that repentance that we're talking about here is no light matter. It's a matter of the heart, a matter of the deepest allegiances of our hearts. True repentance involves deciding to give all of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just those bits that perhaps, well, yeah, he can have that bit but I'm keeping this to myself. If Jesus is Lord, he must be Lord of all. And that is why, even for those of us who have been Christians here, perhaps for many, many years, we've received that forgiveness, that the Holy Spirit is in us. That's why repentance still remains a central part to the ongoing Christian life. Because as we grow and mature as Christians... One of the things that the Spirit does for us is that He reveals our sin even more clearly. He reveals ways that we don't live with Jesus as Lord in our lives. And so we confess that and once again, daily, actively turn from that sin and turn to Christ and say, You are Lord. So we firstly hear, Repent. And there is hope in that repentance. And the second command then flows from that first one, and that is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism uh, flows out of this response of being cut to the heart and turning, repenting. And it's a way that we see in the Bible of publicly saying, as it were, as we said last week, I am calling on the name of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, as Peter says here, it's in Jesus' name that we're baptized. And as we're baptized in water, we then also see this incredible, incredible depiction of the cleansing that we receive. And we also see the truth vividly presented to us that as we go under the water, just as Jesus died, we died. And as we come up out of the water, just as Christ rose, so we will rise. The believer who calls on the name of Jesus, the Lord and Christ, he is united to him. And baptism powerfully demonstrates that. Of course, baptism itself doesn't save. These aren't two things. It's only by trusting in Jesus that, as we've seen tonight, we are saved. But baptism is this powerful, God-given way of, as one writer puts it, openly identifying with the Lord and with his people. We don't have time tonight now to go into too much more detail on baptism. But let me just say that if you are out there and you do know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as Christ in your life, but you haven't been baptized, I would really encourage you to to think seriously about baptism. I'd be happy to chat with anyone later. I'm sure Steve would or or someone else as well. It is a really important thing to think about, and it is worth investing the time to do that because it is fundamentally what we have been called to as believers, to repent and be baptized. And there is great power in professing that Jesus is my Lord, and that is what baptism does. So as we Uh, draw to a close now. I want us to see how Luke concludes this passage and to see here one other thing. One other thing that I think Luke wants us to know for certain, and that is that Jesus saves. As we see here in verse 40, what we've we've looked at up, at, up to this point has been some kind of summary here. Peter's teaching has been larger than this. It's been extended. We read that with many other words... He bore witness and continued to exhort them. And here is how Luke sums up all of this teaching. End of verse 40, Peter calls the crowd to save themselves from this crooked generation. This generation had turned their backs on Christ, had rejected him, had literally crucified him. And the truth is that the same battle line for the lordship in our life exists today. 
and it always will. Will you put yourself on the throne of your life or will you put Jesus on the throne? Because it's only in Jesus, do you see here, that we can be saved. Apart from him, we face the same fate as the rest of the crooked generation. That judgment that we began to think a bit about last week that will fall on all who are not in Christ. But in Christ, there is salvation, there is forgiveness, there is lasting hope. And look there in verse 41. These incredible words. We read that 3,000 souls received Peter's words that day. Repented. They were baptized. 3,000 people came to Christ and received that salvation, that forgiveness, and the gift of the Spirit. And here's the thing. Because as we mentioned last week, this is all happening at Pentecost. And if you remember last week, we said that Pentecost was known as the Feast of the First Fruits. And I think when we see this end here to what's happened, this is really striking. The Holy Spirit has come, and here in verse 41, what do we see? We see the first fruits. The first fruits. 3,000 believers, the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, just as Luke opened with in this book, Jesus is not done. He is continuing his saving work. And we see here the first fruits. But we have seen in the years since his continuing work as he has brought thousands upon thousands upon millions of people to know him. We're going to see that continuing through this book, and we see it today. Jesus is not done. We thought about it this morning, didn't we? God is still at work today. He is building his church through the proclamation of his word, through the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. He today is still doing the same thing that he did then, cutting people to the heart and calling them to himself. Know this for certain. Jesus is is both Lord and Christ, and Jesus saves. So here's the question. Have you called on him? Is Jesus your Lord? If not, this very evening, repent of your sin. The ways that you have cast off the one who came to die for you, your ways you've turned your back on him and gone your own way and come to him. Come to Jesus. Because the promise here is huge. The promise is that if you do that, you will receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not an irrelevance. He is Lord and Christ, and he is continuing his saving work even today, bringing people from death to life. You cannot get anything more relevant, more important than that. So let me also encourage you this evening, if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your Lord, you are in safe hands. Do not go anywhere else for anything else. United to Jesus, you have all that you need. And as you go on serving him, you are today serving the one who gloriously reigns and rules over all things. And you are gloriously serving the one who came to pay for your sin. To pay the price for your sin in full. Know today if Jesus is your Lord, you are forgiven. You are free. And death no longer is that final enemy. There is a hope that lifts our hearts beyond the beckoning grave.
So in light of that, go on into this week. Hold firm to Christ. Rest and rejoice in him and all that he's done for you. And then go on and steadily, faithfully serve him with all you've got because you are serving a savior who is not done. He is still at work in you by his spirit. And that is a great thing to take with us into the week ahead. Let's pray as we close. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest rain, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, that you sent him into this world as both Lord and Christ. Thank you for the reminder this evening of all that Jesus has done and all that he continues to do in bringing people to himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one who we see poured out here, this first Pentecost, and the one who now lives in all of our hearts who are trusting in Christ. Please, Lord, this week, give us boldness to hold firm to Christ. Give us that vision this week as we wake up tomorrow morning. Remind us that Jesus is on the throne. And remind us that no matter our pasts, we are forgiven in him. Lord, thank you for that glorious hope of life even beyond death. Thank you that death no longer holds that sting. But Lord, in, in Jesus, we find forgiveness and hope and joy. Please, Lord, would you, through what we've heard this evening, build your church. Lord, please, would you be drawing people to Christ, even this evening, people calling on his name. Lord, thank you for that promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We rejoice in that promise and we cling to it again this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to close by singing that song, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Let's stand and sing as the musicians play.
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.